millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Julia Aretz. Policy Forum Pod is produced at Crawford School, the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about us at crawfordschool.anu.edu.au. And today I'm joined by two fantastic co-presenters. We've got Professor Sharon Bessel. Sharon is a professor here at Crawford School and also the ANU lead on the individual deprivation measure. She also edits Policy Forum's Poverty in Focus section. So Sharon, do you think we'll hear some poetry about women in policy today? I'm really hoping for some poetry on anything today. It was very disappointing to have John on the pod last week, a poet and a sociologist and have no poetry. Today may be the day. It might be, so I think we can keep our hopes up there. And we also have Sally and Henfrey today, the Executive Director at the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation. She was previously the Deputy Chief of Staff and Special Advisor at the Global Partnership for Education in Washington, D.C. And she has worked across many policy areas, such as public education provision, gender equality, women's empowerment, and health systems in developing countries. So this podcast today will be right up your alley. So it's also your pod debut. Have you mentally prepared for this? I have. I hope I'm prepared. But what an honour and privilege it is to be part of this podcast and to be co-presenting with Professor Bessel. I'm sure it will be great fun. So most of our listeners will know that we each week discuss some of the most pressing policy issues. So perhaps I start with you, Sally, and what has caught your attention over the last week? Ah, there's been so much in the news from the slow burn that is Brexit to the US presidential race to the tragic airline carnage that we've seen. Um, But what's actually caught my eye is this new soap opera called The Heights, which is airing on ABC, which is purported to be Australia's first genuinely diverse soap opera. So I'm really interested to watch that and to um, find out whether it really is going to revolutionise the uh, genre and break down stereotypes. Well, it sounds really fascinating. It sounds like a very positive and great promise. Let's see whether the script actually plays out the way we hope. Let's hope. I've been watching the ads for that, sally and it does look terrific, I've got to say. I think it's actually already airing, but I haven't managed to see an episode. Um, But it, it does look fantastic. So... Listeners, watch the heights and and tell us what you think. (laughs) Um, And I I feel now that I'm completely disconnected from popular culture because it's far more exciting to look at a new soap opera than to look at the train wreck that is Brexit. But it, it is like watching something awful unfold and you just can't take your eyes away from it. And that's What I've been feeling about Brexit this week and this morning, um, we saw once again Theresa May lose the vote in Parliament. um, 
And the speech that she gave afterwards, I was listening to it on the radio, her voice was just the voice of devastation. I mean, I don't want to overplay this, but you could hear the pressure seemingly close to breaking point in her voice. And whatever one thinks of Theresa May, you know, the pressure that she must be under and the burden that she's carried around Brexit is just incredible. And it keeps striking me that here was someone who wasn't in favour of Brexit, who was part of the Stay campaign, but has kind of taken on this burden of trying to somehow navigate her way through the mess. And David Cameron, not sure where David Cameron is. Nigel Farage, I remember a comment made by Nigel Farage after the vote where he said, what else could I do? Well, he could have stayed around and helped to solve the mess. So yeah, Brexit continues to unfold. Yeah, you're definitely right there. And Theresa May has really uh, embarked on a very arduous journey here. Thank you, Sharon and Salient, for sharing your ideas. What has grabbed my attention this week is not really a policy issue, but it's a fantastic podcast. It's The Familiar Strange, which I'd like to give a bit of a plug to. The Familiar Strange is a blog and it's a podcast and it's based here at the ANU. And two weeks ago, the team spoke to the very inspiring Professor Genevieve Bell. Uh, who is the director of the Autonomy Agency and Assurance Institute. In that episode, they build a bridge between anthropology, science, and technology, and they talk about a really, really broad range of topics from technologies from 40,000 years ago to fieldwork in large corporations. It's a brilliant pod series and well worth a listen. The pod comes out every Monday, and you can find it on thefamiliarstrange.com, SoundCloud, or iTunes, and we'll leave a link for you in the show notes, so listeners, go and check it out. Before we get going with the pod, I'd like to also invite you to join our podcast squad on Facebook. In this group, you can get your, your eyes on some exclusive photos and videos from behind the scenes, and we can get our hands on your ideas for future podcasts. As a bonus, you can also get in touch with other listeners from all over the globe and chat to our presenters. You can find us on Facebook. Just type in Policy Forum Pod into the search bar. So today on the pod, we want to have a look at women in politics and policy. Last week marked International Women's Day and with it came an outpouring of inspiring stories admiration on social media for the female heroes in our families, communities, leadership and politics. But also we heard Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison's speech to the Chamber of Minerals and Energy in Western Australia, where he said, we want to see women rise, but we don't want to see women rise only on the basis of others doing worse. Well, thanks for that, Scott Morrison. So today we want to ask, why should we care about gender balance? What are some of the hurdles that women are facing trying to enter senior politics and policy positions? And what would policy and politics look like if we had the same proportion of women in high-ranking positions as we currently have men? So who have we got on board for this today, Sharon? We have got a fantastic lineup of guests, as always, but this is a particularly well-informed and inspiring panel. So we have Professor Kim Rubenstein, who is Professor of Law um, here at the, the ANU's College of Law. Kim's areas of expertise are administrative law, constitutional law, human rights and law and gender. She was a consultant to the Commonwealth in drafting the Australian citizenship legislation. And Kim had a lot 
to say um, during the um, the discussion, the debates and the exit of parliamentarians around that particular part of our constitution that um, has something to say about people's allegiance if they're going to sit in parliament. Some people probably saw Kim on Q&A as part of that and she was fabulous. Um, she is also uh, the inaugural convener of the ANU Gender Institute. Helen Michalius is Director of Communications, Advocacy and Fundraising at the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association. She has worked for the New South Wales Government as a Senior Advisor on Fine Arts and Cultural Policy. And Helen is deeply committed to issues around gender equality and social justice. So a great person to have talking about these issues. Our third speaker is Caitlin Figueredo. Caitlin is founder of Jasiri Australia, an organisation that provides self-defence and leadership skills. Caitlin is a global gender equality activist. She was the ACT Young Australian of the Year in 2018. She is a task force member of the UN Agency Network on Youth Development's Working Group on Youth and Gender Equality. And Caitlin has been recognised on the Forbes Under 30s list for her work on parliamentary gender equality through the Girls Take Over Parliament program. So Caitlin has an incredible range and wealth of experience to bring to our conversation. We were also going to have our very own Helen Sullivan, Professor of Public Policy and Director of Crawford on the pod today, but unfortunately she's not well. So we hope you're feeling better soon, Helen, and we'll talk to Helen another time on these issues. A quick reminder to our listeners before we get started to get in touch on Facebook, where we are Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter, where we are at Apps Policy Forum, or shoot us an email at podcast at policyforum.net. Also, stick around after the main interview because we'll be going over some of your questions and comments and also suggestions for future podcasts. But for now, let's hand over to Sharon and Sally Ann for the main interview. Kim, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Sharon. And Caitlin, it's good to have you here. Thanks so much. And Helen, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. So we're starting with some slightly depressing news. According to the World Economic Forum's 2018 Global Gender Gap Report, the proportion of women in the workplace is stagnating and their representation in politics is falling. Against the backdrop of Scott Morrison's very recent comments on International Women's Day that men should not have to make way for women's empowerment, I'd like to ask to each of you to start with, why should we care about gender equality? Kim, I'm sure you have some good reasons. (laughs) Well, I think we want to care about anything to do with diversity in leadership. And gender obviously is one aspect of diversity that is really important. There may be a range of different perspectives in relation to the group women. But no matter what that range is, each of those women have an undeniable reality that their life experience is as a woman woman in society and that that has an impact on the way they live and experience the world. And if we're thinking about representation, then that has to be part of our concept of democratic participation and representation. And Caitlin, you're nodding in agreement. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think this is like one of my favourite topics. Um, I would have to echo you know, Kim's statements. Diversity 
brings, you know, creates better policies. It creates stronger economies, creates stronger communities. We've seen through the um, McKinsey report that was released last year that um, companies which had more diversity were 20, 21% more likely to achieve better outcomes overall than companies that did not. And that's, you know, in um, democracy as well. We live in a representative democracy. We need everyone at the table because you can't just have policies created by certain, like a certain men or certain demographic, which only have certain level of experiences. You need everyone to bring you know, their different life experiences and their different perspectives. Helen, what are your thoughts yeah, on, it's on a bit why of an, it's a bit of an echo chamber <laughs> in here, but yeah, representative government is important and um, women have an equal right to participate in democratic governance. Um, the, the work that I do at YWCA Canberra, we're looking at various policy issues at the moment around women's superannuation or the number of older women who are being trapped in homelessness. And we look at those things and think, actually, the, the seeds of those in a policy sense were sown a long time ago, probably when there were less women around the table. And so unless we have more women participating in politics, we won't have that gendered lens on, on civic issues, which is so important. And Helen, just to stay with you for a moment. So you, know, you work with women, with, with women across the spectrum, you know, including young women. And I'm wondering what your reaction was to Scott Morrison's comments. And I guess the message that sends to, to everyone, but particularly to young women who might be aspiring for leadership. Yeah, it was appalling. I mean, the Liberal government have, have form on this. I think um, Scott Morrison's comments were a real clangor, but then we remember Joe Hockey's um, comments on Mother's Day <laughs> where he um, took away the baby bonus and, and accused mothers who are accessing their legal um, paid parental leave scheme entitlements and, and called them double dippers. So um, nothing should really surprise us, but this did. Um, in, in terms of what it communicates, I think it is a really poor reflection of, of um, the Liberal Party's position. I think while, while, while you've got um, someone at the head of the party espousing those kind of sentiments, um, it's not surprising they're struggling to attract and, and retain female candidates. And we know that young women notice these things and it has an impact on their aspirations. So um, there was a very good Plan International survey a couple of years ago that came out that said um, that young women in the 10 to 14 age gap, um, only 2% of them identified politics as a future career option. And by the time they looked at the 18 to 25 cohort, that had dropped to 0%. So um, young women who were, I think, very engaged in social issues, care deeply about the world, are obviously picking up signals in terms of the public debate and going, actually, I don't know if representative politics is for me, if this is what's on offer. And can I say also the language is interesting, isn't it? Make way for women because it actually reflects um, a conception of the existing framework that is part of the problem. I think it, it, it was really mirroring that notion that here is the system, we're not going to necessarily make way, as opposed to thinking through, well, what is it about the system that has led to this reality of the dominance of a particular, you know, either from gender or even um, beyond gender in terms of the nature of the type of person who's attracted to politics? That concept of making way for others is about a norm of power that um, does not think about diversity mm. in a, a more holistic sense. And I think that language is also just rather depressing in terms of these issues have been around for so long and then those in power are not really receptive to the more 
fundamental structural issues that are at play. And the problems are not isolated to Australia. If we look globally, we have similar kinds of problems playing out. The World Economic Forum's report also shows that there are only 34% of women in leadership roles globally. That's pretty disturbing. Um, And obviously, it's much worse in some parts of the world. In Australia's public service, for example, amongst the 22 departmental secretaries, there are only eight women. Um, Kim, you know, coming back to the point that you were making about the structural issues, what do you think is going on here beyond politics? Well, I guess one thing that that a figure that you just said of eight actually was not what I was expecting you to say. I thought it was going to be even lower than that. So that says something also about the, the framework that eight is actually quite remarkable historically. So that's perhaps a step forward on one level, but it would it does also then reinforce force how poor the the playing field has been that we that um, that I actually responded thinking that eight was actually quite a good number. But I think it, again, it's that sort of structural notion of what are the expectations in the public sphere of what a um, an ideal leader, an ideal decision maker looks like. And, um, you know, I don't know the names of those eight people who, those eight women who are in those positions, but it would be really interesting, wouldn't it, to think through what are the expectations of them when they take on the role? Are they meant to just act like the men act in those positions? Or have they had the freedom really to be able to create a new sense of what it means to be a secretary of a department? Um, And again, that links back to that notion of making way for women, because it's also about making way for a different style of leadership that, again, I don't think is part of current leadership sort of thinking processes. Caitlin, you you play a, a strong leadership role in the many roles that you play. And I'm, I'm interested in hearing your perspectives about the challenges that you see um, across the, the number of roles that you play that are there, particularly for young women. You know, we've already touched on those messages that, that go to young women through comments like those that the Prime Minister recently made. But what do you think the challenges are for young women and, and where are the opportunities? Yeah, so I think I just want to touch back on what the Prime Minister said. So I actually run a program called Girls Take Over Parliament. That was, um, I actually co-wrote that um, report with Plan International um, released in 2017. And, yeah, we found some shocking statistics that young women say they do not believe believe they have access to lead- 50% of them say that they are, do not have access to leadership positions based on their gender. They also say that the biggest barriers are media and how they're framed in the media um, and the negative perceptions and the bullying because obviously we've seen that in the past year horrifically in terms of politics especially around Julia Banks, um, Julie Bishop um, and so on and we've also um, they also say that playing like house house roles and you know the unequal role in, and their roles in the house is a huge contributing factor. You know, there is I, I've seen this um, this picture on social media recently, which shows um, women and men at a starting line for a race, and men just have I think everyone's seen this. You know, men have absolutely nothing in front of them; you just set the finish line. Whereas women, they had children, they had housework, they had their own work. So it was like multiple different barriers that they had to overcome. And young women, they noticed this. You know, going back to structural inequalities, you know, the prime minister upheld that you know, recently, saying that you know we we do not have to give way to women because that's going to be unfair to men. And that's just upholding the notion that men are le- are the leaders. They're the only ones who are, have merit enough to be in those positions. So therefore, they do not want to lose any of their power 
Instead, they just want to make like a little bit of room so that we can fit into that. And I think that's sending a really negative message to young people, especially young women who go, well, there are so many issues that we're facing. We're trying our hardest to get there. We're trying to open up new spaces. We're creating new programs like Girls Take Over Parliament so we can create those spaces. But still, once you get to the top levels, that's when there's absolutely no no breathing room. But I also think there are things are changing. You know, if, you know, for example, if Girls Take Over Parliament was to happen, say, five, ten years ago, there would be no way we'd have the success that we've had. You know, we are now in four different countries around the Pacific. We have governments coming to us, telling, asking us, can we please partner with them? So we're starting to see a changing demographic, but I don't think it's happening fast enough. Um, and I think that there needs to be a discussion of how can we work together, you know, both at the top leaderships and also on the grassroots to create new partnerships and new opportunities. Helen, what do you see from where you're sitting at, at YMCA? Do you see those changes happening in a positive way and do you have sort of a sense of optimism? I do. I'm I do. you say yes. <laughs> I, do, I do have a sense of optimism. I think it's it's much more a part of the public conversation these days. So that's that's really positive to see. Going, going back to Caitlin's point around um, childcare and caring responsibilities, I think... Um, it's really scary that even in, in families where women are the primary breadwinners, they still do a greater proportion of housework and childcare. Um, so I think things like that need to be to be part of the conversation. But I think um, women are definitely more aware. I think men are certainly more aware. And, um, yeah, I'm hopeful that um, the younger generation who are growing up around these conversations will, will implement it in, in, in their workplaces and in their home lives as well. From Kelly O'Dwyer to Jane Hume to Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, we've seen so many women quitting politics. Across Australia's whole parliament, the percentage of women is just 32%. Caitlin, you're the co-founder of Girls Take Over Parliament, a movement to help Australian young women and girls have political voice. Why is it so difficult for women to enter and then be successful in politics? I think there is a number of reasons, you know, going back to first of all, the perception of what makes a successful politician. Generally, when you ask the general public, it would be a successful politician is male, middle-aged, upper-aged, you know, Caucasian, comes from an educated background, has probably two kids, family, you're very, you're heteronormative, you know, there's like a perfect idealized position. Women are not necessarily considered to be like politicians. And that's because, you know, for generations, masculine cult- masculine qualities are what make up leadership. And so I think first we've got to overcome that perception of, you know, what makes a good leader. And, you know, Julie Bishop was talking about this recently. She said that um, we need more women in politics because they bring a transformative, transformational leadership. They have different leadership qualities. They think differently. And that's true. You know, we don't like to often see men and women as different, but it's true. We think you know, more community-based. We can um, approach different problems in different ways. And so we bring something different to the table. But I think, you know, one of the biggest problems that we've seen is bullying and sexual harassment within the war within the workplace, in particular in politics. There is no set of standards of rules that are currently happening on the House to prevent you know, bullying. And despite you know, all the Prime Minister telling you, we, we support women, we champion them, that's just not the case. And I think... We've seen this with like young women as well. So with our, with our program, for example, we've seen a massive um, divide in terms of who's politically engaged, who's willing to support young women and who's not. Predominantly, it's mostly 90% of the Greens who want to apply, who support and champion our young participants 
during the program and after. We see a lot of Labour participants, a lot of independents, and it's very difficult to get any of the Liberal like, members. We've seen a few. So Julie Bishop was really fantastic and she championed our program. Um, Julia Banks, before she resigned, she was a part of our program as well. Um, so we've had some really great champions, but I think there is not enough um, willingness to support women on in conservative parties. And that's something that we really need to start you know, discussing. Professor Rubenstein, what do you think are the consequences of having so many more men in politics than women? Okay, so I guess to answer that, I think we also need to unpack what we think a parliament should look like. Um, and if we think in terms of representative democracy, of it representing the people, well, given that there is a disproportionate number of men in parliament than the numbers of them in society, then you're not you're getting a skewed notion of, of representation. So that's one of the significant problems. I think another aspect in th- rethinking representation is um, about thinking the way we do representation. So one of the areas of research that I've been um, working on is thinking through, as a result actually of a, a case in the United Kingdom, notions of shared representation, where two people could actually jointly be a representative for an area. So there were two women in the UK who tried to do that unsuccessfully by virtue of the legislative framework. But it got me thinking to um, these sort of broader notions that our parliament attracts a certain type of person who has the capacity to fly in and out in the ways that they do in our federal uh, country and be away from family for significant periods of time. So where caring fits into the equation means that you're getting a certain type of person who has all that work done for them, which means that they are not really knowledgeable or capable of thinking through what the policy implications are of a range of things because their life is so different to so many people. So I think um, that part of the, the, that problem of having a certain type of life experience only represented in Parliament means that you're not going to get the types of policies and legislation that you need to better um, support the needs of the community as a whole. And I, I think it's a really creative idea that comes from the UK of thinking through shared representation. And I might add that the two people that tried to to be a joint member as as a representative, one of them was a single mum. The other was a woman who had a particular disability where she needed to sleep a certain number of hours per day. So she couldn't work a full-time job. And so the two of them together um, had joined forces to say, well, we will um, jointly represent, you know, nominate to represent this particular area. And I think it's a really creative thought because it would also encourage men to be thinking about the fact that when they are representatives, that they also have other roles to play in society in terms of care for children, care for parents, or just other forms of interaction with society that is not only about parliament. So, yeah, I think those are a few things. I think that's such a fantastic example of the way in which we can rethink the structures that are either inclusive or exclusive, and as you say, bring more diversity to, to parliament. But I wanted to perhaps just play the devil's advocate a little bit and pick up on the issue of what female leaders and female parliamentarians might bring to the parliament, particularly around issues of standards of behaviour and bullying. And we see often two arguments for more women in parliament. One is around diversity and one is that it will lead to a kind of a more, um, perhaps more civilised, perhaps a kinder and caring approach to politics. And on that second issue, I just wonder whether that is necessarily the case. You know, we have seen some high profile examples of 
women engaging in bullying um, other women, some cases allegations of women, uh, women bullying men. Is this the argument that we should be putting forward, that those bad behaviours of bullying, of, of, of inappropriate behaviour will be dealt with if women are there? Or is it the case that, that women also sometimes engage in, in bad behaviour? Um, Helen, what do you think? <laughs> I, I personally don't think it's the argument that should be at the forefront of why we need more more women in politics. Um, we need to be be careful about allocating um, the upholding of moral standards to to women all the time and, and thinking of it as women's work. Um, as as you point out, the fact that somebody is a female parliamentarian doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be um, displaying a higher standard of behaviour or or indeed advancing gender equality. If we think about you know Margaret Thatcher or closer to home the the former Minister for Women, Michaelia Cash, you wouldn't call them exactly standard bearers for for gender equality. So I think the the argument should come back to the fundamentals that women have a right to be equally represented, um, but also what it what it brings to the policy space. And there's plenty of great research that shows that um, when you have more female parliamentarians, the, the policies are more female-friendly, they're more progressive, they're more family-friendly. I think that's that's where the argument should be made. I think that we also need to unpack power a bit because it is really about how power is represented um, in society and that often when women do take on those roles, we haven't had that much role modelling of power being played out in a different way than has traditionally been you know, presented by the, the, the men that have held those roles. So that's where I think um, the notion of diversity is really important and reinforcing that diversity is not just about different faces being in the room, but different ways of actually representing power and to unpack how each person in society exercises their own power. I think it's sort of parliament is like the, you know, the apex of that representation, but we can go down to universities and people who take on roles of power within the universities. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. They're male or female, they often replicate traditional no notions of how power is exercised. And it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, it's just that that exercise of power can lead to an imbalance of power that leads to these unhealthy relationships. So I think a lot more work has to be done broadly about what we as human beings should be thinking about all the time whenever we exercise power, whether it be with our colleagues, within family relationships, or indeed in those sort of broader structural terms. Caitlin, how do you see those issues playing out when you've got young girls or young women engaging in, in some of the debates around Parliament through your program? Yeah, so I think it's like a really interesting concept of, you know, do do we want more women in politics to represent women? Is that their only role? That And that, you know, it talks about the idea of, well, does does men automatically, are they able to represent everyone? Is that is there like a divide? And that's what we're starting to see a lot with young women 
one young woman came up to me um, last year just before the federal takeover and she was like, look, Caitlin, I really want to run for office one day, but the problem is I don't see that there's a place for me. I don't see like any party really wanting to champion me, but even if I want to, even if I do manage to get into politics, that's not really the issue. It's then how do I get to the senior levels of politics? Because you can, you know, we've got a problem of getting women into politics, then it's the senior women in politics. And then, you know, talk about if if you're a mum and you have young kids, you know, we've only had one cabinet minister ever and she's now left because she wants to have a third child and that's really difficult and so it's it's the idea of going back to power of where is women's power in politics where where are we allowed to be placed are we there just for you know ticking boxes to make one party look a bit more progressive than the other look a little bit more equal than the other or do we actually meaningfully want them included do we value their insights and their and their ideas and their differences and their capacity to be leg, um, legislative change makers? And if that's the case, then how do we be able to get more women to the, the front bench? How can they be ministers? And and how can we change the system to make it a little bit more inclusive, to make sure that it is a bit more balanced? And that's something that we, at, with Girls Take Over Parliament, talk about with politicians quite regularly, especially um, the female um, female ministers and shadow ministers. So, for example, we speak a lot to Claire O'Neill. So she's a shadow minister. Um, she's still in a, you know, a caring role, but she takes on a lot of responsibilities from um, Bill Shorten when he's away. And I feel like she's an up-and-comer. And she's also a young mum with two young kids. And I remember the first time we spoke to her, she said she just had her her little son. He's about six or seven months old. She brought him to parliament and she was like, I don't have enough room for him, but I have to bring him to work. And I've put and we've had to essentially take one of the office spaces to, for his room. So that means I'm one staffer down. We're down less room. And it's really hard to juggle. And she also said that when she speaks to young women, none of them specifically go out and say that they want to be politicians because as soon as they say that, they're crucified by their parties by, and by men around them. Whereas if men do that, it's considered you know he's, he's ambitious and that he is going to most likely get into those leadership positions. So we've got to look at you know how... How are we talking about politics? How where are women's roles in politics after they get in, and how can we you know change the system to make it more equal? So when we're talking about creating more opportunities or shifting the structures of power so that women are able to to, to enter leadership roles, one of the issues that comes up is quotas, and of course this has been in the media recently, um, given the particular predicament of the current government and the the absence and departure of women amongst their ranks. So since the 1990s, we've had these ongoing debates around gender quotas. Some parts of the world have adopted them. Some parties have adopted them in various ways. Is it time to implement gender gender quotas? more seriously within the Australian Parliament, but perhaps beyond Parliament, to company boards and, and other places where power is carried out. Kim, what, what so about I've been Well, I've been champion, championing a quota in relation to a move to a republic for some time. So back in the um, mid-1990s, when the move to a republic was on the agenda, um, I was going around the country saying that if we do move to a republic, we should build into our constitutional change that the position of head of state alternate between men and women so that whoever, no matter what system we finally choose to 
a point ahead of state, whether it be by parliament or by a direct election, that whoever wins the first um, or whoever is appointed as the first, let's use the word president, but it could be any term, head of state, then from that time on, it would be mandated that it would have to alternate. And I think that that would be actually a really important constitutional statement about equality of access to positions of power. And it's also a reminder that um, in any society, there are going to be multiple numbers of women who would be available and um, appropriate to be in any position of power, but let's just use the head of state. But they're often overlooked because they are not part of the normal gaze. And so that once you, you're forcing that gaze to look broader, you would then see that there's a, you know, a very broad pool within that group of women so that diversity within women would be a necessary consequence of actually mandating that framework. So I'm a, um, a strong believer in, in quotas, and I think that it's a structural reminder that you need to have equal access to positions of power and participation, and that there will never, ever be only one person who is the best person for the job in any context. And I think once we recognise that, then we also recognise that we need to broaden our gaze, and this is a very straightforward way of doing so. We've chosen to have an all-female panel today because we're keen to hear from women on these issues, but what is men's role in all of this and what should they be doing to drive better policies for women? Helen. Mm. Um, two things spring to mind. So um, going back to talking about how do we get more women into leadership positions, particularly in, in politics, um, I think generally speaking it's the case that women will be mentored in the workplace and men will be championed and the the distinction between those two being that uh, you know being mentored means you're getting advice from somebody they're supporting you or it's a champion is someone who will sit around a table and say oh you know Caitlin would be fabulous in in such and such a role um and particularly in politics which does operate on a patronage system um i think it's really important for men to step up and, and play that role. And I was quite concerned by some of what Karen Andrews was saying on Q&A on Monday, where she was saying, because of the Me Too movement, men are worried about mentoring women <laughs> or being seen to champion them. That would be a really sad and I think unnecessary um, byproduct of the Me Too movement. So that would be my number one. Um, number two would be that men take a more active role in um, the home. <laughs> and, um, you know, we that's on workplaces as well. We know that men who seek flexible work often pay a very high career penalty for it, and it's something that's not spoken about as much. Um, but for as long as, as men aren't able to play that role, it means that women are less likely to aspire to leadership positions and they're also less likely to thrive when they get there because their attention is, is constantly divided. So we've got a question from Paul McGamby on our Facebook podcast group. He writes, many a times women with disabilities are left out in policy development and implementation. To what extent or what measures can be taken to ensure the largest minority among women are recognised in policy forums? Caitlin, maybe you want to tackle that one. 
Yes. So I think this is something that I look at quite often. So I'm the vice chair of the Australian Youth Affairs Coalition and our job is to essentially be representatives of young Australians. And that also includes young Australians with disabilities who are often you know, shut out from the room and whose the policies that are designed for them are not necessarily working for them or for their benefits. And so I believe that we need to restructure how we create civic engagement. And that is by ensuring that we have you know, bipartisan or independent bodies that are there to work in partnership with policymakers and those who create the uh, and, and departments so that they can be the ones to go and work on the ground and collect that data, do the um, facilitation so that we can bring you know, minority voices who were never heard all the way up to the highest levels of office. Can I just add there that that um, measure that I mentioned before of shared representation um, also is, as I said, was instigated by someone with a disability. And I think it's about thinking through the exercise of power in a in a much you know broader way than is traditionally undertaken so that you can think of frameworks for um, women with, a, with disabilities to be involved that are not mm. about mirroring what everyone else does. Can I also say in that, um, I think we also need to look at, you know, again, what is a politician and, and who are they and who are the policymakers? Because I, I feel like policy is often created by able-bodied um, people from you know, very similar backgrounds, just like politicians. So we need to start reconceptualizing that people with disabilities have every single right and capacity and capability to be the ones in the room to create the decision to create the decision. So we're looking at, you know, Senator Jordan Stilljohn. He has come in. He is um, a young disabled senator from Western Australia who is pro- um, proposing, you know, not, I would say radical, but I would I would also say progressive policies that are shifting the landscape in terms of the disability community and also for young people. And I think that we need to, you know, as a, as a society as a whole, recognise that the way and the people who've created our policies for centuries are not necessarily the best fit and we need to start opening up new spaces, you know, whether that's through quotas or whether that's through targets or through another system to make sure that, that their voices are in the room. Sounds like we're going to have to have a follow-up podcast on diversity and inclusion. Um, so we've had an extremely rich discussion so far. Um, just looking forward now, a question to to all of, all of you. Um, what would an alternative reality look like? where there would be as many women as there are currently men in leadership positions. Jennifer Nadelsky, who's a um, feminist philosopher and lawyer in the in Canada, I draw on her work for this piece that I've written about shared representation. And she's talking about a changed norm where everybody is expected to be a carer in some shape in society and that if you're you're not, you're basically seen as being an unproductive member of society. And I, I think that that vision of an expectation that in your working day or your working week that it would just be seen as being below par if you weren't taking on a caring responsibility in your day-to-day life. So in that sense that you would be judgmental in the normative sense of a male who spent all of his time doing one workplace, um, you know, being committed to one workplace in their day-to-day lives and so that you would rethink society around care rather than rethinking society around the workplace. So that at the moment as workers, we fit our families around our workplace, but 
my vision would be that we'd have that shift, that we were all focused on our relationships and our caring responsibilities to one another and then work would fit around that. I think that would be a wonderful vision. I'm just going to have to leap in here with a small anecdote from some of my research. Um, And in all of the research that I've done over many years with children, the one resource that they value most is time with their parents. And most often the one resource that they have least of is time with their parents. And that's both mum and dad. And so I think that rethinking and reshaping of society to put all human relationships at the centuries is really powerful and would make an enormous difference to women's lives, to children's lives, and to men's lives in positive ways. What about you, Caitlin? What does your alternative reality look like? I, I am an optimist, so I I think my alternative reality would be you're looking at data. If The first thing that would happen is $12 um, trillion will be added to our global GDP because of gender equality by 2025. That's you know a positive for conservatives, but for you know, optimists like me, it would be you know, I would I would hope to see there would be a decrease in gender-based violence first of all because you'd have policies created by women from women's experience who understand the complex natures and they will be able to target it and reflect. Um, the policies that will be able to you know, make a difference on the ground. We would also see a difference in wars. You know, every single war in human history was created by men. So I think you know, women would bring a different level of diplomacy to the table and would be able to you know, negotiate and work you know, differently. And this is, I guess, my optimistic point of view, but this is what I've seen working with the UN is you know, men are very combative in a sense and they're always pushing for a certain agenda, whereas women are more likely to, to, to talk and discuss and come up with compromising so I think we would see a, a more balanced world potentially in the future. And again, I'd also see you know, more more diversity at the table. So not just like looking at men and women, but I'm talking about, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse um, people. I would also see that women would want to champion, because I'm seeing this on the ground, that women's movements are championing Indigenous rights and sovereignty you know, at far greater numbers than that of men. And I, I fundamentally believe if we get more women in politics, we will be able to see more um, Indigenous rights you know, rise up and we would see the earlier statement of the heart if we had more women in politics be passed straight away. Helen, final word from you. Yeah, I was just going to say, it's it's not so much an alternative reality, but a reality I would like to get back to. Um, so when, when Julia Gillard was a prime minister, was the prime minister, um, uh, a friend's um, son, I was chatting to him one day and I said, you know, are you interested in going into politics? Um, do you want to be a prime minister? And he said, oh, no, no, that's a girl's job. And I'd really like to get back to that point. <laughs> <laughs> That is fantastic. It'd be nice to hear our current Prime Minister say, well, really, this is a girl's job. I'd like to hand <laughs> it over. <laughs> As we wrap up, it's it's magic wand time. I'm going to ask each of you, if you had one piece of advice that you could give to policymakers on how to make senior women's in policy and in politics more accessible to women, knowing that that piece of advice would be followed, what would what would that advice be? Well, for me, it's building on what I just said earlier in terms of their conscious thinking through their role in a caring sort of framework so that they would be changing their worldview around what their responsibilities are in the home and in the community as a way into thinking through shared representation. Caitlin, what's your advice? I think for me, the biggest thing would be listen to women. 
actually take the time to listen and understand where they're coming from, listen to what they're dealing with and try and come up with solutions for that. And also I would ask policymakers to tackle and challenge their own biases because that is something that's really holding women back from senior leadership positions. So listen and tackle biases. And Helen? Um, I would say identify talent in different ways, similar similar to Caitlin. So a, a lot of um, female candidates in politics report that all it took for them to run was being asked by somebody. So um, if we were all on the lookout for amazing female talent and diverse talent and actually acted upon that, I think we would see a real shift. It has been such a rich discussion today, so much for us to take away, to think about, and such wise advice to end with. Thank you all to Kim, to Caitlin, and to Helen. Thank you so much for your contributions and for your wisdom. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Caitlin, Helen, and Kim. What a Great discussion. And what really stood out for me was that when Kim made a point about the gender quota actually being quite a positive thing about creating opportunities, um, this morning when I checked my, my Instagram, I actually saw a post by someone who is a former study colleague of mine, and she went on to work as a parliamentarian in our local parliament in the town that I grew up in. And she said she doesn't wake up in the morning thinking, I wish I wasn't I wasn't in parliament because of the quota. She thinks, I'm glad that I'm here because I got a chance to give women a voice and that this create opportunity was actually created for me. So I thought that was a really positive takeaway on the quota. What did you think, Sharon? Yeah, I thought that conversation around quotas was so interesting. And like Kim, I'm a big supporter of, of quotas. And I think we could make the argument that quotas are unnecessary if we genuinely lived in a society where merit alone was enough to get you into parliament or to get you to wherever you want to be. But, you know, if you look at the at, at the Australian parliament today and particularly at the Liberal Party, where there really are serious issues about the representation of women, I find it very hard to say to myself, every one of those men that's there is the best possible candidate and is there on his merit alone. So I think we, we need quotas to create opportunity and as a corrective when we don't live in a perfect society of, of merit. Um, so I think Kim's points were, were really made, really well made. And I think, you know, your your friend, Yulia, um, that's right. I don't think anyone wakes up saying, I'm, I, I only got here because of the quotas. But people may wake up saying, I wasn't able to make it because I'm a woman or I have a disability or there is another structural factor barrier sort of keeping me out of leadership roles. So I think quotas are, are really important in shifting power, power structures. And also changing the narrative on that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What do you think, sally Yeah, I'm glad that we were able to have a discussion about sort of notions of power and different types of leadership because, you know, quotas are very important are those sort of structural mechanisms and tools that we can put in place. But Challenging traditional notions of power is really critical, I think, as well in this discussion and having creating a space to have a conversation about different types of leadership and what women can bring to the table, I think, um, was, was is really important. It was great to be able to speak about that today with the panel. Um, and then the other thing that really struck me about the conversation was um, the importance of sharing the caring role. And we are seeing more flexibility in the workplace so that so that men and women can participate in flexible work practices 
But it is so important that men take up that flexibility option as well and take on more of the caring role so that women do have the opportunity to take on more leadership roles. And I think that's also about seeing it as an opportunity for men to take on other roles, for men to play caring roles, to have a bigger part in their children's lives or to look after ageing parents or whatever it is. It's not necessarily the case that care is always a burden. You know, it's often a, a fantastic opportunity to have those human relationships. So framed slightly differently, it's about giving men those opportunities as well while opening up other types of opportunities for women. So, yeah, like you, Sally, and I thought that was a really powerful part of the conversation. So I think we can all agree on that. Um, so you know now what we think about this week's podcast, but we would really love to hear what you thought of the discussion. We always love your feedback and your questions and your comments on our podcast. So please keep sending them in because each week at the end of the podcast, we answer some of your questions and respond to what you've sent to us. Let's start with last week's podcast, A Social Insecurity System with John Fowlson, Bob Gregory and Sue Olney. In this episode, they delved a bit deeper into the problems of punitive welfare systems, the caustic language that we hear when talking about job seekers and the role that labor policy plays in creating sustainable solutions. And we've got a comment excerpt from Mark Zanker on our Policy Forum pod group on Facebook. And this is really just an excerpt of what he's written. It's almost a whole essay. So definitely have a look at this great comment. He writes... Also on the welfare front, it is ridiculous to expect remote Aboriginal communities to benefit from completely inappropriate employment programs. Anyone who has been in remote locations in Northern Australia can work this out. We have destroyed traditional First Nations culture, community and way of life. And that is the real problem. Trying to force Eurocentric employment notions on this community has always failed and always will. We are too far down the road now, I think, to turn around, although we should be doing everything we possibly can to do so. What do you think about that, Sharon? Well, yeah, I just say here, here. I think that's a great comment from Mark. Um, the only point at which I would disagree with him is about us being too far down the road because I don't think that opportunity is ever lost to rethink policies that um, – are not only not working, but policies that are actually doing damage. So I would hope that we really can rethink the approach that we're taking to um, to Indigenous communities when it comes to a whole range of policies. And I think more broadly from that fantastic discussion on last week's podcast, you know, we really need to rethink what we want to do in relation to, to welfare policy broadly and what, what it aims to be about, what we're actually trying to do to people through welfare policy and whether we want that to be punitive or whether we we want it to be much more constructive. So in some, yeah, read Mark's comment and agree entirely. What do you think about that, Sally-Ann? Yeah, just reflecting on the excerpt from the, pod, from the podcast, uh, it just reminded me of the importance of involving Indigenous people in, in the development and implementation of policies, whether they're around employment, healthcare or other critical issues in society. We need Indigenous involvement and leadership and voices in the policymaking process. Moving on to another article, The Heat is on an Urgent Case for Climate Action by Andrew Lee. In this piece, Andrew Lee writes that Australia set a series of concerning climate records this year and what the country desperately needs is effective energy policies. We've got a comment here by at nobca2 on Twitter and they write, acting on climate change does not 
mean encouraging more flying and building new airports? I'm keen to get your thoughts on that, Sally Ann. What do you think? Well, I think no. the the um, The comment is right. It's not just about building new airports. Um, what we need with climate change is a bold new vision, um, and we need policies on climate change that cut across all sectors, whether it be energy, agriculture, healthcare, or transport. I think this is an issue that is probably of greater significance for Australia right now, and um, it is going to take a bold new vision. What are your thoughts, Sharon? I get so sick of having this conversation because it has got to be the most pressing issue facing our generation, and it is an issue that is going to destroy the next generation if we do not act. So, yes, we certainly need effective energy policies in this country, and um, building more airports, more flying, all of those things I think are, are, are rightly problematic. But it drives me insane that we keep having conversations like that conversation that played out on on the uh, the news this morning and yesterday around where coal fits in our country's future. And I think you know, I heard Barnaby Joyce making the comment that he represents people who are living on um, you know seven hundred and fifty dollars a week and are dependent on the coal industry for their livelihoods, whereas. Um, Others of his colleagues in the coalition are representing electorates where the average income is two and a half thousand dollars a week, and you know those people are doing okay. But the short-sightedness of that, I think, is so problematic. You know, Barnaby Joyce. I rarely say this, but Barnaby Joyce is right that we have to be really worried about people who are living on seven hundred and fifty dollars a week. But the answer is not to continue a coal industry that is is so problematic in terms of energy policy and climate change. You know, so it's like Groundhog Day. We keep having these discussions. And I think Andrew Lee's right. We, we need to get out of that hole that we've dug ourselves into and think seriously about what the future is in terms of energy policy. And it's not more of the same. It can't be more of the same. Let's move on to some of the suggestions that we got for future pods. We're always super keen to get your thoughts on the topics that you'd like to see covered on the podcast and integrated energy and climate policies is definitely one that comes up frequently in our suggestions. So if you want to do that, jump into the Facebook group and let us know or reach out to us on Twitter. And that's exactly what Liam and Tyler have done. Liam said, free press, different political structures and how it would be possible or not possible, democracy, where is it going, development and post-colonialism, other things that he's interested in. And Tyler wrote, Everything Australia, it's so difficult to find good Oz podcasts. What do you think about that, Sally Ann? Well, they all look like great suggestions. Um, I think with an election coming up, different political structures and how it would be possible or not possible might be a great one to, to look at going forward. What do you think, Sharon? Yeah, they're all great suggestions. And of course, we did recently have a pod um, which featured Carolyn Hendricks and others around deliberative democracy and sort of grassroots democracy. So we've had a had a bit of a look at different political structures, but I think more more discussion around that is always very, very welcome. Um, in terms of everything Australia, I'm not quite sure what Tyler's thinking in terms of the focus, but of course, the pod is an Australian product, engaging with the world. So we do have one good Australian podcast. <laughs> so it seems like we're all very interested in what Tyler actually means by that. <laughs> so um, I would like to pick up on that and say one thing, Tyler, challenge accepted. I reckon we should get together a list of 
Good listens. So, listeners, let us know your suggestions for Oz policy pods we might want to listen to and share with our listeners. You can let us know on our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, on Twitter, where we are Apps Policy Forum, or just ping us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Also, a big thanks to everyone who has commented or left us a question. We really enjoy hearing from you. And if you enjoyed today's episode, then perhaps you might want to leave us a quick review on iTunes. It only takes 30 seconds. Just find that fifth star and it'll be a big help to us in getting word out about this podcast. We'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Julia, cheerio. And from me, Sharon Bessel, bye-bye for now. Bye, everyone. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.